in our series from Guys and Girls of the Bible, we're making a huge leap now uh, from the very early Old Testament to into the New Testament. So our first sermon dealt with Adam and Eve. And if you think of a timeline that went right from the back of that wall to here, that would be where the AD people are sitting now. The next one was about Abraham, the founding father of Israel. He would be just in front of the AD desk. But we're now leaping into the New Testament and looking at the life of Simon Peter. So he would be about just where the front of the drum kit enclosure is. So that's the time span. Obviously, the biblical time span, we're not talking about into the future right now. So, um, Act 1 was over there. Act 2, Abraham and, and was involved in Adam and Eve. Act 3, Abraham, the beginning of the people of Israel. Simon Peter straddles Act 4, Jesus bringing in the new covenant, and Act 5, the establishment of the early church. That's where we are in the Bible story. In terms of location, uh, Peter lived in those little villages there, and that's a slightly bigger one. He came originally for Bethsaida, and then later on moved to Capernaum. It's about the distance between Aldridge and Walsall. Uh, You can see Jerusalem is right down there. So they're up north, Galilee, and it was the equivalent of what we might think of Yorkshire. Distinctive accent, pretty rural, and city people thought they were yokels. That's where Peter's from. He was an absolutely ordinary bloke. His dad was called Jonah, or John. He had a brother called Andrew. He would have had some basic education. He could certainly read and write and read the scriptures. But in today's world, it would have been equivalent to perhaps you know, leaving school with just a handful of GCSE passes. It was more important to go out and earn a living. And living by a sizable lake like Lake Galilee, all his life, he knew that money could be made at fishing. So he ran a small fishing business with his brother. He was married. And given the lack of contraception in those days, that meant he probably had kids. And conveniently, his mother-in-law lived pretty nearby and probably helped out when Simon Peter was sleeping off the night shift from fishing. So his life was like many people's lives lived around us today. A man grafting to bring in some cash so that he could meet his family responsibilities. But Jesus saw something more. Andrew is the one who first drags his brother along to meet Jesus. And in the first chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus encounters Simon and sees in him something beyond the ordinary, which he sums up with a symbolic name. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. Now, the Greek name Peter is Petros which sounds very similar to the name's meaning, Petra, or rock. And later Jesus goes on to say that Peter is a rock on which he can build his community of believers. But when Peter first gets interested in Jesus, it just doesn't look like that's going to happen. Do you like who you are? Sometimes it can take an awfully long time to feel happy in our own skin. And perhaps we wish that we were kinder, or cleverer, or more sporty, or less bitchy, 
or better looking or more articulate or less moody. We all have characteristics which have good and bad within them, positive and negative. The flip side of being very organised is that we might not be that spontaneous. People with very clear goals might get accused of not really listening to other people's points of view. Someone being flexible is to someone else that they're a ditherer. Someone taking the initiative might, for others, be regarded as someone being bossy. And people around us tend to let us know when we get it wrong. And yet, I think most of us long to be acceptable, to, to be more popular at work or at school, or to get more positive attention from our parents or our boss. It's just that our personality sometimes gets in the way. If that's any one of us, then we can take heart from Simon Peter. He had some very well-defined character traits, which quite often got him into a lot of trouble. And yet Jesus not only invited him to come on board, but loved him. In fact, not only loved him, because let's face it, we expect that of Jesus, don't we? But liked him. This ordinary, hard-working, unschooled, headstrong grafter became someone whom Jesus trusted, who he relaxed with, who he asked to support in prayer at times of great need, and to whom he entrusted the mission of salvation. So where did some people get it right and wrong? One of the things I really like about him is that he's very direct. Rather than pretend to know something, which let's face it, a lot of us does, he asks outright when the rest of the disciples are far too shy to ask. Jesus, what does that parable about being defiled actually mean? When he had an issue, he came right out with it, rather than worry about what other people were thinking. Jesus, I want to know exactly how many times I need to forgive my brother when he sins against me. Is seven times enough? And Peter was the loud mouth who confidently declared in Matthew 26, Oh, even if all of them fall away on account of you, I never will. But he could overstep the mark and get it horribly wrong. When Jesus told his followers that the Messiah would have to suffer and die, Mark, 28, uh, Mark 8, 32 tells us that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Oops. That's a bit of a strap down. I just wonder whether the fact that Peter was usually the first to speak was ever annoying to the rest of the disciples who might have liked to have got a word in edgeways. Oh. <laughs> but one thing that is clear in the Gospel narratives is that Peter really loved Jesus. And by staying with him day in, day out, he gradually learned to let Jesus change him. Peter the loudmouth became, once Jesus had returned to heaven, Peter 
God's spokesman. In Acts 2, once the coming of the Holy Spirit has aroused people's interest, we read that then Peter stood up, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I've got to say. And he does it again and again in Acts. God takes Peter's ability to speak up and he uses it to speak out the good news so that everyone can be saved by believing in Jesus. What else do we know about Peter? Well, he was a physically strong person. He was a man of action. That's good news when you need to keep going night after night out on rough seas or you need the muscle power to haul in the miraculous catch of fish. Bad news when lashing out to defend your peace-loving leader by cutting off an attacker's ear, as Peter does when Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. And I bet Peter kicked himself when, sorry, rather than stay with the moment when Elijah and Moses attended the glowing, transfigured Jesus. Peter had a bright idea. Oh, let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. As Luke 9.33 comments rather dryly, he did not know what he was saying. But as an obedient follower of Jesus, God employed Peter's physical endurance when he called the ex-fishermen to set out and build up the early church going from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria to Antioch and then to Turkey and to Europe and finally to Rome. That took strength. And the early chapters of Acts also demonstrate that Peter's ability to make things happen meant that the church took decisions about how it should be organised. They faced up to wrongdoing rather than ignoring it. God used Peter's strength for the good of his kingdom. And our reading from Matthew 14 demonstrates another characteristic of Peter, that his faith in Christ gave him courage to step up, rather than sit there doing risk analysis. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake and when the disciples saw him walking, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. You know, God is so proud of us when we simply take him at his word and have a go. When rather than focusing on ourselves and how we feel and how we'll be affected, We just focus on Jesus and what he is asking. Yes, Jesus was doing something amazing, walking on water, complete control of the elements. But he invited Peter 
to focus on him and share in that experience. And Peter was brave enough to do it. Later, when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane and most of the disciples ran away, Peter kept his eyes on his Lord and followed him to the house of the high priest. And with an area full of armed security, trigger-happy, tense, that too took some guts. What Peter hadn't yet learnt was that impulsive bravery can also get you into a mess. In our reading, Matthew has already established that it's a wild and stormy night. The boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And once Peter starts thinking about where he is and what he's doing, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! And in that courtyard, facing accusation that might very soon turn into hostility, fear overwhelms initial bravery. And Peter denies that he's got anything at all to do with Jesus. Peter has to learn that his courage needs to be motivated by his Lord rather than by the circumstances he finds himself in. He has to trust that, like that wild night on the lake, Jesus will always be there to reach out his hand and catch him. And in the accounts of the early church, that's what we find. Arrested and imprisoned, then marched before a hostile Sanhedrin, the Jewish council in Acts 4, Peter boldly proclaims, rulers and elders of the people, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And it says the council members were astonished when they saw the courage of Peter. He gets put into prison again. And then, miraculously set free by God. But you know what? He's told to go right back out there and preach again in a public place where he will be arrested again. But he does it because he trusts God and he is brave enough to work out his faith. So God has taken something that was already within Peter and now uses it in his salvation story. So Peter gives us hope. Yes, he did indeed become the rock who encouraged other people to commit their lives to Jesus. And what his story tells us is that whatever we like, the bits we like, the bits we don't like about ourselves, God not only appreciates us, that can use us for his kingdom. Now, can everyone please, everyone please put up their right hand and then you're going to put it down if you agree with one of the statements I'm about to say. So everyone, hands up. So put your hand down if one of these statements applies to you.
I have sometimes doubted God's existence. I have sometimes questioned whether my faith is real. I have sometimes wondered what on earth God is up to. I have sometimes absolutely blown it as a witness to Christ. If your hand's no longer up, then listen to this about Peter. Because right now his hand would definitely be down. And yet his story teaches us not to despair when things go wrong. Peter, the impulsive loudmouth, is the first disciple who has the faith to declare in Matthew 16 of Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Up to that point, no one said it. Peter says it first. But you have to understand that the Jews were expecting a military Messiah, a man who was going to exercise worldly power. And that's why many who were initially attracted to Christ then gave up on him. And Jesus taught hard things about the sacrifices involved in following him, about the suffering for the cause of the gospel. None of that was what Peter had been trained to expect. So we know, don't we, that although Simon Peter was a married man with a small business, for three years he faithfully followed Jesus. But there's a moment in Matthew 19 where he clearly doubts if he's done the right thing. We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Has it been worth it? Can I trust that God really will look after me and my family? If I'm generous with my commitment to God's mission... Will it be recognised? When Peter says this, Jesus assures his friend that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for his sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Peter has to learn it for himself. And he does. I think it's because Peter faces the reality of these questions that he can proclaim with such assurance in his letters to the early church that believers are now God's special heirs, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And that God's divine power has given them everything they need. For a godly life. Then there are the dreadful hours when the one that Peter had believed was the Lord of life is agonizingly tortured and dies. How bewildering that must have been. The Messiah 
was meant to be victorious. Has it all been a dreadful mistake? And then Peter sees for himself the empty tomb, but he's still confused. What's going on, God? But look at the power of Peter's testimony in the early chapters of Acts. It is because Peter has lived through the doubt and the dreadful details of Jesus' death that he can speak so personally and vividly to his audience. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Going through the pain empowers his ministry. And then there is for Peter the shame of that dreadful time in the courtyard when he denies that he is remotely associated with his fellow Galilean despite the fact that his accent was a bit of a giveaway. We know that Peter left that courtyard weeping bitterly but I think it also carried on weighing on his mind. In Mark's Gospel, the women at the tomb who are met by the angels are told to go and tell his disciples and Peter, which implies that unusually he wasn't with the others. And Luke says that after Peter went to the tomb, he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. I imagine he was wrestling with hope. Is he alive? And shame. I let him down. And probably fear. What will he say to me? Will he still want me on his team? But it is because Peter goes down to the depth that he can truly appreciate how precious is Jesus' love for him. Just as happened on the lake when Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Luke 24-34 makes clear that at some point on Easter Sunday, Jesus appears uniquely to Peter without the others. It's okay. I really am alive, my friend. And in John 21, Jesus reinstates Simon Peter with a loving challenge that this blokey, brave man of action can understand and respond to. Get out and do something for me, Peter. Live as a rock. Unlock my kingdom so that the rest of the world can enter. Peter has faced doubt and fear and come through it. We too will not always find it easy. 
But Peter's story teaches us to keep our focus on the Lord of all power rather than on our own weakness. When the Sanhedrin challenged Peter and John in Acts 4, it said that they took note that these were unschooled, ordinary men who had been with Jesus. See, Peter was shaped by the character of Jesus. He knew that there was no other way of living, no other leader who could offer him the words of eternal life. So Simon Peter was an ordinary man whom God transformed. Will we, like Peter, commit our lives to live and walk with Jesus? Are we humble enough to offer all that we are and allow ourselves to be changed by Christ so that we can serve God's kingdom? Because you know what? God wants every one of us on his team. Amen.